Okay, let's turn in our, in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've reached chapter 5. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're working our way through the book of 1 Timothy bit by bit. And we've reached uh, the first two verses of chapter 5. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 1412. 1412. We've just come through this passage in the, in the back of um, chapter 4. And that's hung together. And, and then we've come to the first two verses. And really, we're just going to take them by themselves and look at them. The first two verses of chapter 5. They say, now remember, this is Paul's instruction to Timothy. And Timothy is, is like the pastor of the church there. And, and he's a relatively young man. He says, in verse 1, do not sharply rebuke an older man but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Some might think, how in the world are we going to get a whole sermon out of that? But then those of you who know me know that's no problem. Yeah. It's not really me. It's, it's the word of God is rich. And, and let me read it again. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Actually, I find uh, much in, this, in these two short verses that apply to our lives. And what I'd like to do is share with you three implications for our lives that come from this passage. And the first implication is this, is that we must recognize fellow believers as family members. We need to recognize fellow believers as family members. Notice the family terms that are used here. Father, it has the word father, brothers, mothers, sisters, these people that Paul is instructing Timothy about how he's to relate to them, those people are not his blood family, but they're to be treated as his blood family. Now, it's interesting. Um, when the scripture talks about us as believers being family together, it doesn't mean that it obliterates our family, our blood family ties. Matter of fact, that you can see that in the very next two verses. Look at verse 3 and 4. It begins a passage that we'll look in more detail about, Lord willing, next week. But it begins to talk about widows in the church and how widows should be cared for. But notice what he says. Honor, verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, now they're talking about the blood family there. They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. So when it's obvious that here God still recognizes blood families and the special relationship that family members have to each other. And yet he takes that strong meaning of, a, of the blood family and he applies it to the family of believers and says, that's how you're to relate to each other. He's emphasizing the radical change that occurs between us when we're saved. The change, you see, is not only between you and God, 
when God saves you. The changes between you and every other person on this planet that God has also worked in and saved. We're a family. We're, we are a family as believers. You might ask the question, well, why, why is that? Why are we family? Well, it's because we now all have one father. If we've all got one dad, we're family. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's one Father of us all, and that Father is God. And he has made us to be family with each other because we, are, we all have the same Father. You remember, I think here of um, the disciples coming up to Jesus and saying, teach us, teach us to pray. And he said, this is how you pray. And what did he say? Our Father, who art in heaven, your brothers, your sisters, because you have one Father. And he, that Father, has made us, and this is important to remember, he has made us to be family. He's made us into a family. Another passage I want to read to you is Romans eight fifteen and 16. I, wrote, I won't read the whole thing to you, but listen as I read it. It says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is amazing. And then it goes on and says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Hebrew scholars tell us that that word Abba could probably most readily be translated into English with the word daddy. And he's saying that God has worked in your life and he's given you a spirit. And by that spirit, you're able to look up to the God of the universe and say, daddy. Is that awesome? Daddy, father. And he then has done this. And his spirit in us testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. He's our father. He's made us into one family and 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 we we are to relate to each other in that way family ties are strong i um i have a brother i've got one brother he um he lives in canada um he's actually he and his wife are um working with uh, their their missionaries with the um, native americans there my sister lives in Colorado. I have one sister. She lives in Colorado. We like to stick together, our family, you know. And although we don't get a lot of face-to-face time because we're living in different parts of the country and of the, of the continent, actually, we each know that if any of us were to have a real crisis where we needed the others, we would e- all of us would either get on a plane or get in a car and go over to the, help the other one, Right? Because we're brothers and sisters. And that strong tie is what God says ought to be then among us as believers with each other. We are fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. That's the way 
we actually are with each other. That's the way God counts us with each other. Let me tell you a story about two people, a lady named Candace and a man named Jamie. They live in Shreveport, Louisiana, and this story is true, and it was uh, written about in May of last year, 2009. Candace uh, lived across the street from Jamie, and um, one day Candace was... Um, uh, they're, they're, they're like in their forties, forty-ish or so. And, uh, one day she was talking with her neighbor and it kind of, as the conversation went along, she told the story about how her mother, when she was just a teenager, had, had a child. She was unmarried and she gave the little boy up for adoption and, and never, knew then anything about the boy and but she had later married and had a family and Candace said that her mom had always said that that she that she Candace had a brother somewhere and she really wished she could meet him and uh, Jamie looked at her and said well that's interesting I mean like when was it the baby was born it was 1977 he says that's Interesting. I was born in 1977, but given up for adoption. I, I don't know anything about my birth mother. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? They started comparing notes, and everything kept matching up. And finally, they had a DNA test, and they found out they were brother and sister, living right across the street from each other, treating each other like neighbors, acquaintances but not treating each other like brother and sister. And now they realize they're actually brother and sister. And you know what I think? I think that we in the church, and could I get personal and just say, we at Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church can sometimes be like Candace and Jamie were. We sit right next to each other on a Sunday morning, and we treat each other nicely, I, I watched you guys greet each other. You were nice. But we treat each other more or less as acquaintances and friends and not necessarily as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. We're right next to people without realizing that, hey, that you're my brother. You're my sister. These people in this room, all those who have truly believed in Jesus Christ are your brothers and your sisters and they're your family and they're not your family because I want you to catch this. They're not your family because you all happen to choose on this day to come in this morning into this room. Uh, They are your family because God chose them and made them a part of his family just as he made you a part of his of his family. You see, often people look at the church and more or less like a theater. Maybe the Allentown Symphony Hall or you go to see a, a, a symphony concert there or somewhere else you go to see a concert or a movie or a play. People come into a room and they sit next to each other. And for those brief moments there in the theater, there's a little bit of a bond between you because you're sharing an experience. But when the experience is over and you go back in the parking lot and get in your car, you you feel no obligation whatsoever to keep up the relationship that you had 
briefly with that person that sat next to you, right? You're just, you just shared a moment together, but that's, that's it. So you were an audience together. Most many people look at church that way. We come together on a Sunday and we're an audience together. But God says, no, you're not an audience. You're a family. You're a bunch of Candace's and Jamie's sitting next to each other, not realizing that you're actually brother and sister and not treating each other that way. We need to be seeing each other as family. And that means at least two things, at least two things it means. Number one, and when I first mentioned this, you might not catch the logic behind this, but I want you to follow me. Number one, we need to be welcoming of new people. Why do I say that? Because in this family, we are not in charge. Amen? Who's, who made you to be a part of this family? God did. Who made the one next to you to be a part of this family? God did that. They didn't do it. You didn't do it. God did that. He moved in your life and brought you to the point where you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. God is the one who's adding to his family. And when God adds someone to his family, he adds, he always adds them to a local church family. Some people don't believe that. Some people believe that you can just be a Christian all by yourself and maybe watch TV and everything's hunky-dory. Uh, that you don't actually have to be related to other people in a local church. But you know what? That's not the picture that this book gives. This book shows us that when God adds a person to his family, he puts that person in some expression of his family, his great big worldwide family, has little expressions. They're called local churches. And God always puts his people into little local churches so that they can live out being in the family of God. That's the pattern in the Bible. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so as God adds people to his family, he adds people to our local church family, and we need to accept those people into the family. Amen? We need to be accepting of new people. Wouldn't it be a shame... If God is adding people to his family, but the family doesn't want to accept the ones that the father is adding to it, wouldn't that be a shame? God's bringing people around and yet we are cold towards them or we're not doing our part to welcome them. You know, recently we added to our staff a part-time position of a pastor of assimilation and that was to, to help us put some things into place to help us be better at, at um, welcoming new people and then moving them along in the process of being very involved. And that's good, and we're looking forward to some changes and plans and things like that. But a person added to the staff isn't going to change actually what needs to change. What needs to change, I'm saying to you this morning, gently, but I'm trying to say it, is that we need a mindset change. You see, it's very easy, isn't it? When we are a part of this family, this is kind of a big family, 800 people or so in our church. Well, realistically, you can't be buddy-buddy with 800 people. Amen? It's too, it's too many people. You can't 
get to be really close with this many people. And that's understood. And so what happens is in your Sunday schools or in the small groups or in ministry with other people, you begin to make relationships with a certain amount of people in the church and you're closer with them. And that's right and that's good. But what's not right is that when you then, without realizing it probably, are close to a certain amount of people that they're, they're the ones you gravitate to all the time. Every Sunday morning you gravitate to them. And there's a Candace. Or there's a Jamie right next to you and you don't see him and you don't see her and you don't treat them as brother and sister because you're comfortable with your friends. We've got to stretch ourselves, friends. There's always a danger of settling for the comfortable. We have to realize that the father of this family is adding children to his family and we need to welcome them in. But there's a second, um, a second thing I think that this truth means to us, and that is that we need to be willing to get to know each other. Some people aren't in small groups. Some people haven't taken advantage of the Sunday schools and other ministries. You know, there's no better way to get to know people and be friends than to actually help serve, do something along with others. And as you serve, you get to know each other. Look for a place to serve. Look for a place to get to know other people. Don't treat the church as a theater. Well, that's the first implication of um, these two verses in 1 Timothy 5. We must recognize fellow believers as family members. The second implication is this. We must be concerned for our fellow believers' growth. We must be concerned for our fellow believers' growth. Look again at verse 5. Excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. He's, he, Paul's saying to Timothy, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him. And some versions say, but rather exhort him or encourage him. You notice that there's an underlying concern for the growth of that person. In other words, why would Timothy be concerned? Why would he be tempted to re- sharply rebuke this man in the first place? Well, it's because there's something wrong in that man's life and Timothy wants to help him see that and change. There's a concern for the person's growth, their spiritual growth. There's a concern that there's consistency in my brother or sister's life, that they live consistent with the truth that they profess to believe. And Paul is saying to Timothy, Paul is assuming that that's happening in Timothy's life. Timothy is concerned with for his fellow believers' growth. And so he's going to speak to them. And Paul is saying, when you do, do it in the right way. But there's a concern for truth. And a concern that our lives are shaped by and therefore reflect that truth. Look back at chapter 4, verse 12. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Remember what Paul is saying to Timothy there. He's saying, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when people believe in Jesus Christ, their life begins to change. And they, 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 their speech, the way they conduct themselves, 
their love, it, everything changes in the life. And that's a concern. That's what we must have. But it's not an empty changing of the life without the truth that makes it change. Because then we saw in verse 13, chapter 4, 13, where he then said, Until I come, give attention to the reading, which we know and we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's the reading of the scripture. It says, be concerned that the scriptures are read and understood and taught. And so there's this melding of content and truth that then changes the life look at first timothy chapter one we start you probably don't remember this because it was a while back but look at verse five so it's first timothy one verse five but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith You see, here the goal is not merely a correct understanding of the Bible and of truth. That's where it starts. You start there and you have to have that. But the goal, he says, is love. The goal is the the truth taken into the life and then it coming back out of the life in a changed way. The person is changed and now I love. I love people. As God would have me love them. I love God as God would have me love him. The correct understanding of truth is just the first step. Very important step. You can't skip it. But it's the first step in the process. Then we put that truth into action in our lives and our lives are changed. And if we fail, as we all do, we get off course. We need somebody to come along next to us and say, hey, Cliff. You're off course. Move over here. Hey, move over here. And when you do that, you treat each other like family. That's what he's saying in First Timothy chapter 5. I see two applications from this truth, too. The first one is this, that sometimes we do need to confront and challenge each other. We need that. That's God's plan. That's one reason why he's put us together in a family. That's one reason why Christianity is not just an individual thing. Every person is individually saved, but then quickly God moves them into a family. And we need each other to correct each other, to challenge each other, to confront each other when we need it. Is God nudging you, perhaps, To do this with a brother or sister. And up to today you've resisted that. Is God nudging you and saying to you, hey, you're the right person to talk to so and so. Go gently speak to them. This scripture challenges you and nudges you further to go ahead and do that prayerfully, gently. But speak to the one that God is leading you to speak to. And then secondly... Are you using your gifts to help your Christian family members grow? You see, Paul um, Paul was speaking to Timothy and he had certain gifts. He's the pastor and the leader and especially the teacher. And so he's using his gift to, to help others grow. But we're all gifted in different ways, but we're all gifted. And you're given gifts of the spirit in order to serve, not in order to feel good about yourself. Just you're given gifts to serve. 
Are you serving others? Are you doing this? I think about our children's programs and how um, right now as the fall has begun, uh, we're still short some workers. And sometimes I scratch my head and I think in a church our size, how can we be short workers? Certainly we have enough people gifted to do that. Maybe, and this is, that's just an example, but let's not pass over it. Can you be used of God to help your brothers and sisters? And and maybe they're your little nieces and nephews. Maybe they're your grandkids. These are family. Are you serving? Are you serving your family? We must be concerned for fellow believers' growth. And thirdly, third implication. And I just want to speak frankly about this. We must beware of sexual temptation. We must beware of sexual temptation. Look at verse 2. He's, he's talking to Timothy, a younger man. He said, now you appeal to older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters. And then he adds, he adds, in all purity. Because here's a young unmarried man dealing with younger women. And, he, and he's saying, Timothy, you've got to be careful. Sometimes you you have to speak into the uh, women's lives like that. But as you do, you must be careful. Beware of sexual temptation. I think about 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn over there. It's just a few pages. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 21. It says, Therefore... If anyone cleanses himself from these things, and these things are uh, a mixture of um, error, there's there's error there as well as practices which are wrong. It says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace with those who called on the Lord from a pure heart. I notice in verse 21 where he's saying, I, I, I just want to look at one phrase there where he says, if you, if you cleanse yourself from this stuff, the, the wrong thinking and the wrong actions, you see that, that phrase in the middle there, he says, you'll be useful to the master. I like that. We want to be used of God, right? We want, we want God to use us. We're all used in different ways. God has a plan for every one of you. Ways he can use you in other people's lives. Ways he'll use you for his glory on this earth. We want to be useful to the master. And then it says prepared for every good work. But you're not useful to him if you're tied up in sexual sin. You're not useful to the master. And then he gets in verse 22 and he says, now flee from youthful lusts. Don't be naive about this, he's saying. Run away from, these, from this thing. From youthful lust, run. Don't stand and fight. It's been said before, and I'll repeat it. It's not original with me, but in the scripture, when it says, when it speaks about confrontations with the evil one, with the devil, it says, stand firm. Stand and resist. And then when it talks about sexual temptations, it says run like fire. It's not the same. You don't stand and try to fight it. You run. 
Flee from youthful lusts. Now, some people, when they hear me or other people talk about this, I can't comment about others, but about myself, they'll say, ah, you're just uptight. You're just uptight. Uh, you think maybe sex is dirty or, or bad. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. I was watching a movie a couple months ago on a DVD when my son was around. He always fills me in on what he thinks of the good movies. So he says, you got to watch this one, Dad. In the, in the, in the movie, there was, this, there was this, I won't go into the details, but there are some very valuable th- things. And they were in a safe that was locked with a special super-duper security system. And part of the movie was how the good guy was going to try to get the stuff out of there, right? So the reason it was in the safe all locked up with this super high-tech security that nobody could get in was not because it was bad. It was because it was extremely valuable. Amen? That's why it was put in the safe. And my friend, that's why God has warnings and builds a fence around the sexuality of yourself and sex between a husband and a wife. Valuable things get put in the safe to be protected. And that's why you guard against sexual temptation because it is God's good gift. And I speak to young people, single young people. And I just want a a word of caution and of hopefully common sense to you is that you live in a culture that's thrown all the boundaries off. And and what's happened is is that the the culture is saying, forget the safe, just do what you want. But God is saying, no, don't do that. For your own good and for God's glory, lock it up in a safe. And then what happens is, is then one day you'll be standing in front of the church family and your family, and you'll say, I do. And the other person across from you says, I do. And you're married. And then the safe gets open. Amen? And it's God's good gift. And you will never regret, never regret that you kept it in the safe until you and he or you and she said, I do. But this, this word is also important for those who are married. Because we live in a culture where it doesn't matter if you're married or not, or if the other person's married or not. There are people looking. There are people looking. And you've got to guard your marriage. Something funny. Uh, for those of you who speak more than one language, you can relate to this story. But there's all kinds of funny things happen when you learn another language. Because you get words mixed up. And some words in other languages, there's not much difference between one thing and another. And my wife, when we were out, I asked her if I could share this story. Uh, uh, and I have more funny stories about me messing up the language than I do my wife. But this one happens to me and my wife. She was, leading a, she was in a women's Bible study in Africa. And, of course, it's all in Swahili. And she gets to this one point And she's saying to him, look, ladies, you've got to guard your bucket. 
And they're looking at her and he says, you've got to guard your bucket. And she kept talking about it. Well, you see, in Swahili, the word bucket and the word marriage have one letter difference. And she was actually trying to tell him, you've got to guard your marriage. But it was coming out, you've got to guard your bucket. So remember this. <laughs> and the people were poor. I mean, buckets were very valuable things. <laughs> but there's something more valuable than the bucket. It's their marriage. And there are people out there that don't give a rip whether you're married or not. They'll target you, man or woman. And you must guard your marriage. Amen? Beware of sexual temptation. Beware of sexual temptation. Well, this this passage says we're family. And in the midst of the passage, then, as we've looked at, we've seen three implications. We've got to recognize our fellow believers as family members. And we need to be concerned for these family members' spiritual growth. And in the midst of it, we can't be naive. We have to realize and beware of sexual temptation. And as we do this, we'll see God's blessing in our lives. And we'll see him change us and make us more and more into the people that he wants us to be. Let's bow in prayer. And as we do, we'll move towards communion. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, as I studied these words this week and thought about the nature of our church, that you've made us family, I've sensed even in my own heart areas, area uh, room to grow and i'm sure it's true in all of us oh lord i'm sure it's true in all of us father i pray that you would change us where we need changed in our perspective as we look at each other to see each other and greet each other as brothers and sisters fathers mothers nieces nephews grandchildren grandparents Make us more and more aware of that and help us to live that way. And uh, Lord, we pray that as you do that, you would be pleased to add to your family. And as you add it, people to your church, for you will do it. May you find Cedar Crest a place where you can steer people and they will be welcomed and made a part of the family. Oh, Lord, we don't want you to pass us by. We want you to use us. And so we ask that you would do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.